Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas, a Marine Corps veteran, behavioral medicine researcher, master certified health education specialist, and adjunct professor for George Mason University's Department of Global and Community Health. Kate is also a TEDx speaker and author of numerous publications, including her latest book, Stopping Military Suicides, Veteran Voices to Help Prevent Deaths, which she co-authored with fellow Marine Corps veteran Sarah Plummer-Taylor. Kate, thank you for making time for me today. I first met you through the fantastic military veteran nonprofit organization, The Mission Continues, specifically the Women Veterans Leadership Program, where you are part of the senior staff and also a guest speaker. And with your Marine Corps bearing and experience as a public speaker, I was immediately drawn to your command of the room and your comfortability as a woman and in the way you addressed your audience. That is so kind. Yeah. And reconnecting with you today is a full circle moment for me in the best way. So let's start off with your origin story, where you're from originally, and what led you to the Marine Corps. Well, I started making up an answer to the question, where are you from? Because I grew up a Marine Corps dependent, and we were in a different city or a different state every two years. I think I joined the Marine Corps because of that childhood social conditioning. Um, My dad was a career infantry officer, loved the Marine Corps. Our family was um, always living on Marine Corps bases. It just felt like home to me. I was originally going to join the Air Force because they offered me a scholarship and I thought, well, this, this is, you know, this is the military. But I started training with the Air Force and I realized that I wasn't getting to do the muddy, dirty, bloody training that I wanted to do. And I, I wound up making the switch to join the Marine Corps. I was a little bit of a a little bit of a GI Jane complex type, you know, I cut my hair really short and I trained twice a day and I just really wanted to be part of the club. I loved the Marine Corps and I wanted to be the best Marine I could possibly be. So I served from 2002 to 2008 and then I did a little bit of reserve time as well when I when I left. I joined I should have been a communicator, uh, you know, thinking about it now, but I, I asked to become a military police officer because it was as close at the time as a woman could get to combat arms. Field MPs did convoy security and working dogs and all kinds of stuff. But what I found was that I really like people. And when you're doing garrison law enforcement, you're showing up on everybody's worst day. I show up right after you beat up your stepkid. I show up right after you got a DUI that's going to end your career. I show up right after your, your illegal poisonous snake escapes in the housing units. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it just wasn't, it, it didn't really create a lot of joy to do law enforcement. So I knew I was going to take a different path after I left the Marine Corps and I started studying public health. So you made the choice to join the Marine Corps after 9-11, knowing that the environment we were getting into was going to get intense. Yes. So you did deploy to Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Well, I was stationed in California and the opportunity to go on a deployment to Fallujah in 2005 came through our office. They were looking for an officer and I hadn't, I hadn't deployed yet. And I really felt like it was something that I needed to do as part of the greater Marine Corps team. So I volunteered and I wound up deploying with the 2nd Military Police Battalion. And 
honestly, the deployment was so fulfilling and it's such a growth opportunity. I learned so much. I pushed my envelope in so many different ways. I felt like I was at the center of history. I felt like we were making a real difference. Uh, I was not wounded or, you know, I didn't have any adverse experiences on my deployment like so many that I love did. So it was a really, it was a really positive experience for me. I'm still extremely close with some of the Marines with whom I was deployed. And how long was your deployment? Seven months. And it was, uh, it was a weird space because I was deciding whether I was going to get out of the Marine Corps, which was my original plan, or stay. And after that deployment, I just knew there was no way I could get out because it felt like the Marine Corps was at war and the rest of America wasn't participating. And I just, I wanted to be around the Marines. You said you got out in 2008? I did. Did you go into the Guard or Reserves? Accidentally, yes. <laughs> I, I met this fantastic reserve officer who said, you know, you're kind of chatty. You like people. Why don't you do some recruiting for the Marine Corps Office of Legislative Affairs? So my very first reserve billet was this fantastic billet where I got to run around Capitol Hill and I got to sit in Starbucks with people and convince them to come work for us at the Office of Legislative Affairs. And the work, you know, I'd occasionally get to go take notes in a committee hearing or something. The work was fascinating. I walked into a wall. I saw Senator Orrin Hatch and it was like a celebrity sighting. I walked into a wall one day. Um, so I really enjoyed, I enjoyed that. And then I was down in Alabama and I was working with the fourth um, anti-terrorism battalion and that was just a group of great people. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed my time in the reserves. It was hard because the Marine Corps is a full-time lifestyle, and the reserves is asking you to live that life in a part-time way. And I always found that challenging. So in your transition from Marine Corps to civilian life and in meeting and connecting with various people, where did your research in public health and mental health come in? Well, I, um, I started working in health promotion and public health, focused primarily originally on physical well-being. I taught, um, I taught a lot of wellness classes. I started working with veterans um, and I taught adaptive wellness. So yoga for somebody after a blast injury looks a little different than somebody who doesn't have one. And I, I learned to teach that to people. What I found in that work was that Health is more complicated than just physical well-being. You know, athletes, yes, they want to get back to being athletes, but there's mental health, there's social health, there's emotional health, there's spiritual health. There are all these things that contribute to whether or not somebody is operating at, at maximum well-being. And so I got really interested in mental health promotion and, and overall well-being and started working in that more amorphous space because I found that it was really important and somebody wasn't going to go to an adaptive CrossFit class if they were clinically depressed. They needed help with the clinical depression first. So with your own experience of the military transitioning out, having gone deployed in the process of that, did you realize that you were also helping yourself as you were helping other people? I never realized that. I would say, looking back, I started studying all of these things because my own transition was a total debacle. I've kind of described how important the Marine Corps was to my identity and my life. And then leaving the Marine Corps was just a shock. You not only don't have a job anymore, you don't have a sense of purpose. You don't have your your community of friends and colleagues. You literally don't even live in the same place anymore. So it's a variety of stressful changes all at once. And I didn't handle it terribly well. I drank too much. I was in an unhealthy relationship. I was a stereotype in so many ways. And starting to study the issues with transition 
started with a conversation. I was at an RWB event, a Team Red, White, and Blue event, and I was talking to someone about some of the nonsense happening in my personal life. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, Kate, me too. And it was this cathartic realization that I'm talking about systemic issues, not necessarily all personal failures. We're talking about systemically, it's hard to transition from the military. And I got really interested in studying why is it so hard and what can we do to make it easier? So the last duty station I had was at Paris Island and I trained recruits. How can I make it easier for my recruits to leave the military? They came in with me. So is there anything we can do to make it easier for them. I think that's our responsibility, even after our watch is over. So can you talk a little bit about your research in mental fitness and rewiring the brain for resiliency? Yeah, well, one third of people are naturally resilient. They can have the kind of upbringing that you see on the Jerry Springer show, and they are going to make it as productive citizens in the world because they have natural resilience. Two-thirds of the population can grow resilience, and you can actually rewire your brain and your body to have a decreased stress response and and just an increased level of ability to uh, come back from stressors. So one of the things that I teach people to do is called mental fitness, and it's basically the active down-regulation of your own nervous system. If you can regularly and repeatedly and at will down-regulate your nervous system, whether it's through breath work or whether it's through some kind of movement pattern, everybody's thing that works for them is slightly different. And that's where it gets tricky because I can't just tell you sit still in a dark room and it'll happen for you. You've got to kind of experiment and figure out what down-regulates your nervous system. For me, sitting still with my dog is just so down-regulating. That takes me parasympathetic in no time. So mental fitness is something that you can actually grow just like growing your bicep with a bicep curl. If you do enough of this intentional downregulation, the front portion of your, brain, of your brain grows bigger. You get more focused, you get less anxious, and you get more mentally fit. It's mindfulness. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I believe in all of what you said so strongly. When I got out of the military in 03, there weren't programs around then like they are today for post 9-11 vets and certainly not for women. So when I moved to Vegas in 03, I wanted to have a completely different experience from the military. And in my transition, I really enjoyed the freedoms of Vegas and how easy it was to get lost in the casino world. But I knew I wanted something positive as well, so I started going to yoga every day. And I have to admit that when I heard a word like mindfulness, I gave a huge eye roll until I started noticing that although the postures never changed, my body did, not just physically, but in terms of Uh, One day, triangle pose felt great, and I could maintain the posture for a long time. Then the next day, that same triangle posture hurt to get into, and I had to struggle to stay balanced. And um, same with backbends. Some days I had so much flexibility, and backbending felt effortless. And then other days I felt like the Tin Man. And so I started paying attention to my thoughts and where my mind was when I was doing the poses. Uh, Like, was I dreading a posture before I even attempted it? And if so, how did my body react to that dread? And what was my breathing like in that moment? And was it all connected? And day by day, I discovered that, yes, for me, it was all connected. And then 
I started paying attention to my thoughts in class and how my body responded. And when I started a pose with my breath first and a positive mindset, I was able to do the posture more and not necessarily go into it deeper with flexibility, but just my body responded in an open, more positive way. And I remember thinking, huh, is this the mindfulness thing the teacher keeps talking about? <laughs> yes, it was. It was. And I, I really believe that for me through yoga, I was able to rewire my brain and through a consistent yoga practice, I was focusing on breath work and it flowed into other parts of my life and everything shifted. So I completely connect to your research. And in your research, have you found that the military is incorporating more of a breathing mindfulness awareness type of training into its readiness or into its culture maybe? Yes, there is a, there's a lot, there are a lot of really well-intentioned and outstanding people who are trying to increase resilience, mental fitness, mindfulness in the active duty military. Right now, resiliency training programs are mostly PowerPoint presentations, which, you know, as people who believe in kind of more of a somatic experience would say, that's not really going to help somebody become resilient. It can help them learn about resilience it can tell them what they need to do to go go increase their own, but it's not gonna it's not gonna necessarily help with the job. So there have been some really exciting programs. One in particular with a, a group of Marines who were um, pre-deployment, and it was Liz Stanley, Dr. Jaw, a bunch of work, a bunch of um, researchers who are working in mental fitness, and they found that three minutes twice a day visibly changed the gray matter in their participants. They they were finding just mm. massive differences in three minutes a day. I would say the communities that are doing the most of this type of training are the special operations community, where you can sell mental fitness and samurai warrior culture and the idea that, you know, breath work makes you stronger. Um, it makes you more focused and thus makes you more lethal. Um, so I think the special operations community is, is doing a lot of interesting work here. That's so great. And the best part is it's so accessible breathing. It is. It is. And that's almost why it seems too simple. Mm -hmm. It seems too simple because everybody has downregulated their nervous system at one time or another, you know, so they know they can do it. They don't repeatedly make it a habit and a routine. And therein lies the chronic stress problem. You can see elevated blood cortisol over time. You can see an increased amygdala. You see all of these things happen to people. And long-term, even if it's low-level chronic stress, is going to um, create or exacerbate health problems. So it's, it's really important for not just health promotion and performance enhancement, but also just for general health and well-being mm -hmm. to practice mental fitness. You've conducted extensive research in behavioral medicine, and in sharing your research as a speaker at numerous TED Talk events and in authoring and co-authoring a multitude of research articles, publications, and books, what led to your new book, Stopping Military Suicides, Veteran Voices to Help Prevent Deaths? that you co-authored with fellow Marine Corvette, Sarah Plummer-Taylor. So I really like to think about this book as the 
culmination of a decade's worth of work and research. And a lot of that work has happened with Sarah Plummer Taylor, who I call my work wife because we've done so much work together. We used to run a we used to run a business together that um, ran retreats and did educational seminars. So we kind of looked at one another and we said, "This is what we've done so far. What do you see yourself writing next? What do you see yourself writing next?" And we we thought, "Why don't we combine?" the work that I've done kind of explaining resilience and mental fitness and how to prevent suicide by improving stress injury and depression rates. Why don't we combine that with some of the work you've done on teaching people to become more mindful and become more resilient? Why don't we combine that into one product and um, see if anybody will read it? We went back and forth with the publishers a lot about the title. They really wanted a title that was on the nose. I worry about contagion effect. I worry mm -hmm. about I worry about the language. You know, it's it's hard to talk about suicide. We have a we have a suicide problem in the military connected community. That's true, but it's still hard to talk about. Even now, it's a little hard for me to to read the title. Um, I would rather call it something positive and health promoting, like reckoning with resilience. But really, what we're talking about is we're talking about serious cases of stress injury that continue over time, serious cases of depression that if continued over time, cause all kinds of problems in people's personal lives. And we are putting forth a, a series of solutions and hoping people try it out. And that is one of the interesting things about the book is that it's very useful to a lay audience. You don't have to be military connected to be interested in resilience trait cultivation and to be interested in the things that we talk about in the book. The stories are all military, but the material, the content um, is useful for anyone. The veterans that you interviewed for your book, are they post 9-11? Are they Persian Gulf War? Are they inclusive of Vietnam veterans? That's a great question. So this book focuses on the transition experience of post 9-11 veterans primarily. Uh, I did write a book that focused on the experience of older and aging veterans. It's That's in Bulletproofing the Psyche. But this, um, this book focuses on this younger generation of veterans, and we're focusing on transition, really that first five years that you get out of the military, which is mm -hmm. interesting because we always thought it was the number of combat deployments that predicted risk of suicidality. It's not. It's being within six months of separation from service that makes you more at risk. So it's the loneliness. It's the loss of community. It's the loss of purpose. It's not wearing a uniform that meant a lot to you not doing that anymore. There's a, a tendency to look in the mirror and just say, what is next? I don't even know where to go from here. And that was mm -hmm. my experience. It sounds like it was yours a little bit. Yeah. And it's easy in a city like Las Vegas to get lost and make a lot of bad choices. And as a young woman who's not hideous and caters to women, it, you know, it's that much easier and accessible. So I, when I, found yoga, I was in need of a positive community in a not so positive environment. And I worked in a casino, which is oh, wow. the environment of toxic behavior. And, uh, but I was making a lot of money at the time, but it's a toxic place and these are not my people. So yeah, it's how I found yoga. And I was able to go do yoga and then go in at night in this negative environment and get through it and then come back the next day to yoga and decompress and have this community and breathe. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it, but it really, so that really helped me out in that weird time of 2003, 2004, where this war was going on. And I kept thinking about people who were injured. And then there's people here at the casino partying, gambling, nothing like that world doesn't exist. 
And that really conflicted me a long time for a long time. I was I was exactly the same way. I was a little bit antisocial because I felt like you were either you were either on the team that was sacrificing or you were not. And uh, it created an us against them mentality for me that was very unhealthy because it prevented me from connecting where I otherwise could have connected Mm -hmm. because I was I was setting myself as other or somehow, you know, separate from the, the new civilian colleagues and friends and classmates that I was running into. I got in my own way for some of it. Mm-hmm. In your research, did you speak with mental health professionals at the VA? And are today's service members more likely to go see a mental health counselor without the stigma of, I'm going to see a mental health counselor? That is such a great question. Uh, and those are the those are the boulders we've been trying to move, right? Stigma against care-seeking and then access to care. Those are two things that have gotten a lot better. You've seen leaders come forward and say, I go to mental health treatment once a month because I keep myself tuned up and that's what a good warrior does. There's definitely less stigma. It's still there, it's still part of the culture, but but people are actively working on, on decreasing it. And then as far as access to care, the VA has, you know, they, they've been hiring and um, staffing vet centers and um, taking mobile vet centers out to, to try to reach veterans in their community. Younger veterans are more likely to seek care at the VA. Women veterans are, interestingly, our post-9-11 group is more willing to identify as a veteran um, and we're more willing to use the VA uh, than, our, than the previous generation, which I think is interesting. I think there's there's a lot of fantastic initiatives. One of the things I love that the VA is doing is their whole health initiative, where they're trying to bring different counseling modalities, acupuncture, mindfulness. They're bringing all of these trainings to the standard of care so that if somebody, you know, somebody in treatment would have more uh, more available to them. So I think I think there's a lot of good work happening and there's a recognized need to help with military transition. I uh, I feel very positive about what people are doing and what folks are trying to do. Going back to the five-year period uh, and the transition to the civilian world, do you know of any intervention programs, newer intervention programs that are seeing a positive impact? Well, one in particular that I think is exciting because it, it might mean that we start doing a better job on TAPS in general. The four and five day transition program that service members leave uh, or that service members attend before leaving the service is kind of chronically vilified for being too short, you know, not enough time to really help somebody transition. But there's a new transition program for women veterans. They still go to the TAPS, but then there's a, a one or two day seminar on Veteran Health Administration Services for Women Veterans. It's specifically for women. And they get taught about, you know, every every benefit that they've earned by serving. Um, so that program is really great. I think we're starting to see tailored interventions in the active duty component, and that's really encouraging. And then we've got some of these large post-9-11 veteran service organizations have grown and continue to evolve like Team Red, White, and Blue has a lot more virtual offerings today than it did a decade ago, but they're also reaching people that they didn't reach a decade ago. Mm. Um, so the mission continues. Team Red, White, and Blue, uh, you know, these organizations are working with places like the Bush Institute to move the needle forward. And uh, there's a lot of smart people in the space. In the research you and Sarah conducted, were there any discoveries and markers that pertain to women and more specifically to women of color? 
So what we have found is there are definitely, so we, we, when we find issues with unit cohesion and social cohesion, we're usually finding that there's some kind of intersectional minority status. So, you know, it, we're talking about women. Women are more likely to suffer these adverse experiences. Women of color are more likely to be enlisted in the military in general. They're overrepresented in the military service. So there are those issues of race and ethnic background that you see intersectionally. So what we say is if something is a risk factor, if being a woman is a risk factor for leaving the service with a low level of unit cohesion, maybe you had a couple of bad experiences, those bad experiences impact your transition. Your transition doesn't go quite as well or optimally as it could. You have connection problems, that sort of thing. So there are programs, um, I don't know of any in particular that are designed just for women of color, but there are programs that are meant to help women in transition. I think of the VA's Woven program, um, where they train peer leaders. There's a lot of women of color that have trained to be peer leaders for women transitioning from the service. Uh, I think about the Women Veterans Leadership Program at TMC that, that, gathered, um, that gathered women together specifically and with intention. Uh, so we're starting to see more of that. And then we're starting to see a recognized need for that. I'm working on a needs assessment right now with the University of Alabama and we are um, asking all kinds of different questions, but the biggest question we're asking, well, one of the biggest questions we're asking is, do you care if you get healthcare treatment or go to a nonprofit? Do you need a single sex environment? Is that important to you? Do you want a nonprofit to have a women's program? And we, so we wanna ask those questions and we wanna ask why, so that we can provide a business case for having such women's programming. That's kind of a, a major focus of effort for the next six months for us. So as you mentioned, talking about suicide and suicide prevention can be a hard conversation, but necessary. And your and Sarah's book is now available to purchase. And again, the book is called Stopping Military Suicides, Veteran Voices to Help Prevent Deaths. And I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So is there anything you'd like to share that I haven't touched on because I haven't read the book? The only thing we try to do, you know, we try to make mindfulness and nervous system regulation really accessible. We try to use language that's very gender neutral. Mm. Um, we try to tell stories that make sense to, to men, women, people of different ages. And we're, it's really an effort to share something that's worked for us. It's really an effort to share something that we've been teaching other people and other people have said works for them. And my, my hope is that somebody picks it up that needs to pick it up, whether that's a service provider working in the, in the, you know, the veterans health space or whether it's a veteran themselves. And the more that we talk about systemic problems with transition, the more people realize, oh, this isn't just me. So I say I was in a bad relationship. Then I read that 40% of women veterans experience intimate partner violence at one time in their life. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, my bad relationship isn't just a series of dumb choices that I need to self-flagellate for for the rest of my life. It's, it's a systemic issue that we can do something about. And, uh, you know, the more we have conversations like that, the better. Mm -hmm. Bringing it out into the open is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So I like to ask all my ladies who do the podcast, if a young lady were to come up to you today and say she's thinking about joining the military, what would you say to her? My instinct would be, I have dueling instincts. On the one hand, I want to protect her. 
And especially if she's going to enlist, I know some of the hardships that will be in front of her. And on the other hand, I want her to experience the tremendous life-altering challenges that are the wonderful parts of military service. So my instinct is, why don't you join the Air Force, which is 24% female and, and a, just a little bit of a friendlier environment. But I know I, as a young girl, I wouldn't have listened to that. I wanted to slay the dragon. I wanted to be a Marine. And I, I was w- willing to put up with more than a few hassles to become one. Well, this has been really wonderful. Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for the time and for, for connecting. And thank you for listening. Visit Dr. Kate's website at doccate.com. That's D-O-C-K-A-T-E dot com. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. 